Let's talk about, we have this week and we have next week. So let's discuss the uh, Haggadah and the Seder. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about first about the idea of a Seder. So the idea of a Seder, Seder means order. The Seder, as it's called, the term Seder does not appear for the most part in the Haggadah. But it does appear in one place, at least amongst the Ashkenazim. I don't know what the Svardim do. But the Haggadah has different sections. In fact, in the beginning of many Haggadot, there's like a table of contents. Kadesh, Urchatz, Karpas, Yachatz, Magid, Rachatz. Fifteen steps. And the last step is called Nirtzah. That's the last step. Halel, Nirtzah. We end the Seder with Halel, basically. And then there's something called Nirtzah. Nirtzah doesn't appear to be a very central part of the Haggadah. The Haggadah ends with, basically with Halel. But what does Nirtzah mean? So first of all, Nirtzah, Nun Reish Tzadi Hey. The first question is, what, is the actual, what does the word mean? And then what is the significance? So Nirtzah is related to the word Ritzay, Reish Tzadi Hey. And Ritzay in the Torah usually is a word that appears in conjunction with sacrifices. Ritzay, Ratzon, Yeratzeh. These words in the Torah are talking about when you bring a sacrifice, or the sacrifice is brought So we ask God to accept our sacrifices. And in fact, in our liturgy, the Shmona Esrei, which is what we call the Amida, it's our main prayer. And um, it's divided into three sections. So it's praise, it's request, and it's acknowledgement or thanksgiving. And the Third section begins with the word Ritzay. Ritzay Hashem Elokeinu Biyam We ask God to accept Israel and its prayers. And then it continues, Vashevet Avodah Ledvir Beitecha, and return the Avodah, which means the sacrificial service to your sacred place. Vishe Yisrael Utfilatam Biyavatakabel Buratzon. And the prayers and the sacrifices should be accepted Buratzon, should be accepted. And the avoda should be always the ratzon. Now, the word avoda typically, certainly in the liturgy, refers to sacrifice, sacrificial service. So the ritzay, which inaugurates the last section of the Shemona Esrei, speaks of prayer. We ask God to accept our prayers, but we also ask God to accept our sacrifices. So, Rabbi Soloveitchik used to formulate it by saying that in Ritzay, we want to turn our prayers in, into, into sacrifices. But the word Ritzay, Ratzon, which appears prominently in the Shemona Esrei and the Chumash, usually refers to, we ask God to accept our, our sacrifices. Sometimes it's accepting us as well. Um, the word Ritzay appears very prominently in the Shabbat services as well. We ask God to accept our Strengthen us on, on the day of Shabbat. Kiddush, we mentioned, but say, right? in Chaltanu, etc. In any event, so Nirtza, what does Nirtza mean? Hawel Nirtza. I mean, it's not, by the way, it's just a poem someone wrote. It's a medieval poem. It has no deep significance in the sense it's not from the Gemara, it's not from the Mishnah, it's not from the Chumash. It's a medieval poem that became very popular and was appended to the Haggadah as a table of contents. Nonetheless, the people of Israel have accepted it, and it says something. Now, Nirza, when you have, if you don't have your Haggadot, I'll, I'll tell it to you. Nirza, 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 and then you say, Chasal Sidur Pesach Kehilchato. 
ככל משפטו וחוקותו. כאשר זוכינו לסדר אותו, כן נזכה לעשותו. That's how it starts. So חסל סידור פסח, כהוכותו. We have completed סידור פסח. That's where the word Seder comes in, the Seder. וכאשר זוכינו לסדר אותו, כן נזכה לעשותו. So what is this all about? This is called Nirza. So Nirza, first of all, this is a poem. Chasal Sidur Pesach was not written for the Seder. Let's start with that. It's a poem written by Rabbi Yosef Tovelem. Yosef Tovelem is very important. Yosef Tovelem, very important a scholar and poet. It was very early. He's the 11th century. And he wrote a poem even today, it's still recited in some places. Not in most synagogues, don't recite it. But some synagogues do recite it. And, it, and they recite it this coming Shabbat, actually. It's coming Shabbat, the Shabbat HaGadol. And in some places, on Shabbat HaGadol, mostly Hasidish places, they add in special prayers for Shabbat HaGadol called Yotzrot. So there's a Yotzer for Shabbat, an extra prayer for Shabbat HaGadol, written by Yosef Tovelem. And what it is, is a long description, very long description, of all the preparations needed for Pesach, and especially for the carbon Pesach. There's a whole long description of what is required to prepare for the holiday of Pesach, and especially the carbon Pesach. And after he completes this description, he writes at the end, Chasal Sidur Pesach I have completed describing the order of the Pesach, referring primarily to the carbon Pesach, according to the Halachot. Chasal, so, so somebody, don't know who, took the Yosef Tovelem poem, which is all about the carbon Pesach and the way it's brought, and appended it to the end of the of our Seder. Chasal Sidur Pesach Gehilchato. Now the point of that is, very important point. We ask ourselves the question, what are we doing the night of Pesach? What is the, called the Seder? What is the actual thing we do? To which the response is clearly, well, Primarily, the night of Pesach, and the Chumash is certainly this way, the night of Pesach is a night upon on which we eat the carbon Pesach. And when you read the Chumash, it sounds like that is the primary thing that we do that night. In fact, it may be the only thing we do that night. And the carbon Pesach has all kinds of special rules. In Egypt, it was brought on the house. The blood was taken and put on the doorpost, the lintel, etc. You couldn't leave the house, etc., it was eaten together with matzah and eaten together with marar. And after the carbon Pesach, Israel can march out of Egypt. That's the description of the carbon Pesach in the book of Shemot. In the book of Devarim, remarkably, there's a very different description of the carbon Pesach, which completely contradicts what it says about the carbon Pesach in the book of Exodus. Namely, the book of Exodus, the focus is on the house, and the blood is put on the doorpost, etc. You can't leave the house. In the book of Dvarim, chapter 16, Chapter 16 of Dvarim, You may not slaughter the Paschal sacrifice in your own gates. Forget your own house, not even your own gates, not your own cities. But rather, everybody goes up to the place that God chooses, and there the carbon Pesach is to be brought, and there the carbon Pesach is to be eaten. So the end, so Nirza, when Nirza is a, Nirza is a carbon word. Nirza means the sacrifice has been accepted. Now, there is no sacrifice, because we don't have a carbon Pesach anymore. So, but we do have this, the ordering of the description of the Pesach. 
Chazal Sidur Pesach. We have completed the ordering of the Pesach, the Seder. The way the Korban Pesach is described at the Seder, it's called Sidur Pesach, right? So the poet says, Yosef just as we have completed describing it, how it was brought once, we should be mer- we should merit actually bringing the carbon Pesach. Which is why at the end of that little section, which has four more lines, then we say, which ends the Seder, basically. And Lashana Babi Rushalayim is recited because what it's saying, whether you uh, believe this or not, doesn't matter, but what it's saying is that next year in Jerusalem, Jerusalem means the temple. Next year in Jerusalem, you know, means that next year, let's hope we can actually bring the carbon pasta, because this year we had only a shadow. The main ingredient of the, of the Seder is missing. We have the matzah, we have the marrow, we have no Pesach. So at the end of that section called Nirza, we say Chasal Sidu Pesach, and then we say Lashana Babi Rushalayim. But anyway, my point is that there in the Haggadah, twice we encounter the word Seder. So we have in Masader the Pesach. That's what we do the night of Pesach. We have a Seder. So how, how are we Masader the Pesach is the question. So the Pesach, we are Masader the Pesach at the Seder by integrating the eating of the Pesach, which is the meal. Not just the, it's a sacrificial meal. It's a great meal in our tradition. And this meal is eaten at rabbinic instruction by interweaving it with another mitzvah called Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim. There's a mitzvah to tell the story. God actually begins with this. No matter how much we know, Mitzvah Reinu Asapeh Bitziat Mitzrayim. Whoever says more, that's how the Haggadah begins. The Haggadah says there's a mitzvah, a new mitzvah. We didn't know about this mitzvah before, maybe we did. There's a mitzvah called telling the story of the Exodus, and we are fulfilling the mitzvah this, this particular night of Pesach. And then the Haggadah adds, no matter how much you know, even if everybody there is very wise, nonetheless, it's still a mitzvah to tell the story. And not only that, the more you tell, the better. And the very next statement in the Haggadah is actually a story about five rabbis, five scholars, who were together. Meisim, Rebbe Elizabeth, Ben Azariah, Rebbe Akiva, Rabbi Tarfan, etc. Sure. They were in B'nai Brak. Which demonstrates both, both, both propositions are true. Number one, no matter how much you know, you still have to tell the story. Because these were the five great rabbis of the time, including Rabbi Akiva. His two rabbis were there too. Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Eliezer. These are the giants of the Talmud. So you see that they certainly were well versed in Torah. They are the main teachers of Torah Shabbat. Nonetheless, they were busy telling the story. And number two, not only were they busy telling the story, but they told the story the entire night. That's called Marbu Gesaper Arezim Meshubach. And I would add a third point. That emerges from the story, which is, it's not about counting the hours. The point is not that they stayed up till five in the morning. This was after the Seder, by the way. The Seder is earlier. The kids, everybody's there, they go to sleep. And then the rabbi stayed up more to the CPT at Mitzrayim. It's not instead of the Seder. It's on top of the Seder. Seder's finished. Everybody in the family says the Seder. 
Apikolmen, whatever it is, goodbye. And these five were up the rest of the night, but the point, actually, is not just that if you, even though you're very scholarly, you still have a mitzvah, and, um, and that the mitzvah is the more you do, the better. It's actually a third point, which is in the story that the Haggadah tells us, which is unattested elsewhere, by the way, but if you have it in the Haggadah, it says that they were busy all night until their pupils came to them. So their pupils came and told them, time's up. It's already time to recite the Shema of the morning, means means it's already the morning. So the, so the mitzvah is at night. Call a Lila. But the mitzvah doesn't go beyond the Lila. So therefore, but they were so engrossed that they didn't even realize. So it's not just about the number of hours one learns. It's how deeply you're involved. And these five were so deeply involved they didn't realize that basically it was past dawn. It was almost sunrise. They had no idea. They were so busy studying together. So that's the story is uh, explaining, actually, confirming what that goddess says. That's the mitzvah of Sipu Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim. So the Seder, then, the way the Seder works, the ordering, the, 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 these five scholars were busy after the Seder, learning all night. Seder was over, but they continued all night, obviously. But the point is the Haggadah itself, the way the Haggadah is set up, is the integration of the meal and the mitzvah that the Haggadah tells us exists of telling the story, or maybe studying the story would be a better word, the study and the festive meal are integrated with each other. They're integrated in the sense that you start with the meal. At the Seder, the Seder is, you start with the meal. The meal on a holy day, Pesach is a holy day, because you're not allowed to work, and because there's a special sacrifice and a special observance that defines something as a holy day. Hanukkah is not a holy day. Tishbah is not a holy day. Purim is not a holy day. Rishchorah is not a holy day. Pesach is a holy day. It can't work. It's a malacha. Every holy day starts with the meal. starts with Kiddush. Now the Kiddush actually starts the meal. You're not supposed to eat before Kiddush. You're supposed to start your meal with Kiddush. That's how it works. If you eat without Kiddush, you're not eating a Shabbat meal or a Pesach meal or a Yantav meal. You're eating a Friday night meal. If you want to eat a Shabbos meal, you start with Kiddush. And the point of Kiddush is it starts the meal, and important meals usually don't start in many cultures, including our own Western culture. When you have an important event, an important meal, you don't just sit down and eat any bread. You have a wedding, for example. Very few weddings begin, I don't know, the non-Jewish weddings, but the Jewish weddings have something usually before the meal. I mean, they have the wedding before the meal, but the point is, they have something. They have drinks, smorgasbord, you name it, butler service, all kinds. But that's not just because people are hungry. It's because it is describing this meal as something different, something special. On Pesach, the way we do it, it's actually Kadesh Rechatz. First we make Kiddush, which begins the meal. We drink the first cup of wine, and then we wash our hands. So to the outside observer, it looks like you're actually going to eat the meal now. And after we wash our hands, we don't eat bread. So we eat uh, hors d'oeuvres, called carpas, which is another sign that's something special, an appetizer. It's a very special meal. But then we don't continue the meal. We break the matzah, we don't eat it. We're not going to eat the matzah until we first understand what these mitzvot are all about. Pesach, matzah, mar. So we, and then, one second, and then, then we start telling the story. 
We tell the story, and we after we tell the story, we begin to say Hallel. Because it's not just a story, we're, we're very grateful. But we don't finish Hallel. We stop after the first two psalms, and then we wash again and eat a meal. And then we finish Hallel. So we are integrating, actually, what we eat with what we say. We start the meal, stop, study, begin Hallel, stop, eat, and then Hallel. The integration of these pieces is what we call a Seder. Yes, Lord. Yes, it did. And they ate, but there was no study. There's no mention in the Torah explicitly. The Torah in four places talks about what's going to be if someone, if a child asks the question. It typically says when you come into the land in the in the in the future, your children may ask you, "What is this about?" Now, when you look at those verses, only one of the four verses that are cited is it probable that the question is asked the night of Pesach. The question, for example, that's ascribed to the wise child. What are these mitzvahs? What are these edot chukim? Which that God describes to the wise child when you open the Chumash and say for Devarim, that question has nothing to do with Pesach at all, actually. There's something else. You come into the land and you have all these rituals. So the kid says, what are we doing all these rituals for? And the answer is, well, we were slaves in Egypt, and God brought us to the land, and God commanded us to, to do these things in the land, to maintain a presence in the land. Now, the Haggadah doesn't, in fact, it cites the verse, it ascribes it to a wise child, it suggests it's about Pesach. When you open up the Chumash, it's not about Pesach at all, actually. So the question is, so obviously there's a rabbinic reinterpretation. The only question that is pretty clearly about Pesach, since you asked the question, and this raises a host of its own interesting uh, problems, is Moha Avoda Hazot Lachem. Now, Moha Avoda Hazot Lachem, Vayokhiyam Ru Alechem B'neichem, Moha Avoda Hazot Lachem. When it happens that your children will ask you, what is this about? What is this Avoda? Now, when you open up the Chumash, and you see that verse, Moha Avoda Hazot Lachem, it's pretty clear that the question in the Chumash is, when your child sees, sometime in the future, that you're putting blood on your doorpost, the child will ask you, what are you putting blood on the doorpost for? Which is a very reasonable question that a child might ask. Why are you putting blood on your doorpost? And the answer is, well, God, God passed over a hovered over the house when God destroyed the Egyptians and God saved us. Therefore, I, I am putting the blood on the doorpost and sacrificing to God. Now, in point of fact, when you read the Chumash later, there is no blood on the doorpost. As the Torah says in the book of Zvarim, when you come into the land, you, you stop with the doorpost business, you stop with the house business, and you bring the sacrifice in the central temple. And it's clear from the Chumash that that question, I'm going to raise the question without answering it, just to point out the intricacies of this simple little book called the Haggadah. In the Chumash, when your child asks you, is a totally reasonable question every inquisitive child would ask. Don't be that inquisitive. Say, why are you putting blood on the, on the doorpost? But in the Haggadah, when you first encounter that verse, Rasha Mahu Omer, what does the wicked child say? The Chumash, first of all, that's certainly not the wicked child, it's every child. But not only that, what is even more puzzling is that in the Haggadah itself, when you get to later in Magid, and the Magid part has Rabbi Gabriel's statement from the Mishnah, you have to say three things on Pesach. Pesach, Matzah, Umarah. 
Pesach Why do we eat the Pesach? And uh, God says, because God passed over, God Pesach, means either to pass over or to hover above. Leave that for now. As it is written, Vamartem Zevach Pesach Hashem. You should tell them, this is the Paschal sacrifice. But Vamartem Zevach Pesach Hashem is the answer to the question, So when it describes the current Pesach, the verse that it cites, actually, is when someone says, what is it about? Well, let me tell you what it's about. It's about the hovering. There's no sense whatsoever from that part of the Haggadah. This is a, a bad question, of, of a wicked question, etc. No, it's a totally reasonable question. So, in any event, yeah, so in Egypt, they put the blood on the doorpost, for sure. Uh, the Chumash changes it, actually. Very striking. Pesach of Sefer Devarim and the Pesach of Sefer Shmod seem to have very little in common. What kinds of contradictions? The rabbinic tradition tries to resolve them in a quite ingenious way, by the way. But in any event, getting back to the Seder. So the Seder is the integration of what we study, what we teach and study and learn together in different settings. In the, the Haggadah is mostly about focusing on intergenerational learning. The whole Haggadah is about the family. It's, uh, it's, it's clear. That's what Haggadah is. It's about stuff with Manishtana, with questions and answers, and uh, it involves Kenegad Arba Banim, Haggadah even brings in, etc., it's all about that. Sometimes, sometimes people stayed after the Seder, and they learned together. Nothing to do with the Seder. They stayed up all night. And by the way, just as a demonstration, that the story of the five scholars learning together has nothing to do with who was actually at the Seder. Zero. It's a very simple point. That the first scholar that's mentioned in the story, Maeser Rabbi Eloza ben Azariah, the story took place in B'nai Brak. The Gemara has a, a, a disagreement about when the Seder is over. The disagreement is is, 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 is it all night? Is the mitzvah all night? Or is the mitzvah, which means the Seder, over at midnight? There are many people nowadays, by the way, who are careful to eat the afikoman before, before midnight. So the one who holds that it's all night, actually, is Rabbi Akiva, who lives in B'nai Brak. So maybe it was in his house. So they followed his lead and he was held all night. The rabbi who holds explicitly it's only half the night, and many follow that opinion, happens to be Rabbi Loza ben Azariah. So Rabbi Loza ben Azariah held the Seder was over at midnight. The Seder was over at midnight. So why was he up all night? Answer, because the Seder may be over. But he still felt the obligation to tell, or rather to study the story, which in some versions is saying the halachot, because whether it's a mitzvah of Sipu Yitzhi at Mitzrayim is one question. But it's certainly a mitzvah of uh, Talmud Torah. They were studying together. It's an opportunity. If you're Elazar ben Azariah, and you have Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yoshua, and you have uh, Rabbi Eliezer in the same room, you would take that opportunity to study with them, I think. Right? <laughs> it's the, I mean, it's, you know, they're talking about the, you know, the Rambam, the Rambam in one room over here. Do you want to join us to learn? I, I think so. You know what I mean? That's the, that's the point. So, it has nothing to do with the Seder. Anyway, well, it's there's a question as to whether it's Sipur and Right. So it may be a question. Rabbi Akiva certainly holds it. It's his house. So Rabbi Akiva holds it. But my point is, even if, right, even if it's not Sipur and Sipur, it's Ryan. Right? But why would you think it, why would you think that Sipur and might be only until midnight? That's a very good question. 
one could in theory, I, I, I totally agree with you, that it could be discreet completely. You could, I suppose, understand that the mitzvah, since the, since the way the rabbinic un- interpretation is, that it's all connected to, to the Seder, I suppose you could argue that if the Seder is limited to midnight, then the explanation of the Seder is limited to midnight as well. They could, you, could, you could disagree with it also. But that's the, in any event, that's what we call the Seder, and that's the mitzvah of Sipur. Now, I wanted to mention one other thing about Sipur Yetzirah Mitzrayim. I don't mention this in the past. And that is the Haggadah itself. You know, the Haggadah is a very little book. You just read it. It's very, very short. You know what I mean? It's, but it, And it's just simple in a certain way. But actually, it's not so simple. Sort of like the Chumash. You know what I mean? It's like really simple. When you get to look at it more carefully, you see a million problems. The Haggadah contains within it, right at the beginning of the Haggadah, Omar uh, Rabbi Eloza ben Azariah. Rabbi Eloza ben Azariah again. He's pretty important in the Haggadah. He says, I am as a man of 70. I was never successful in convincing my contemporaries, the rabbis, that Yitziat Mitzrayim should be mentioned at night. Until another rabbi came along, Ashadrasha ben Zoma. Until ben Zoma, different scholar, came up with a drasha. The Torah says, You should remember the Exodus all the days of your life. So kol is typically a word, kind of an inclusionary word. So yemei chayecha, that's the days of your life. Kol yemei chayecha, but all the days, what is that adding? It means the night. So the mitzvah to remember the Exodus in the day, and also to remember at night. But the chachamim disagree. No, 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 no. Only in the daytime you remember the Exodus. What about Kol? Kol means even after Mashiach comes, you still have to remember the Exodus. That's a very interesting dispute. Is the Exodus to be remembered even at Messianic times or not? Well, what does that mean? People read the Haggadah. I don't know if people are thinking so much about what they're saying, but if you think about it, what could it possibly mean that Rabbi Elizabeth, I couldn't convince the others that you have to remember the Exodus at night. We are remembering the Exodus at night. As we're gathering around the table, and we're remembering the Exodus at night. Well, what, what do the Chachamim think? That the Seder is in the daytime? The Seder is not at night? That's crazy, obviously. So, of course, that's not what he's saying at all. He's not referring to Passover. Then do Passover. There's a different fight. Unrelated to Pesach, and in fact, it's a Mishnah in Tractate Brachot, right in the beginning, first chapter. And that is, everybody agrees that the night of Passover, you have to tell the story. No one disagrees with that. It's a special mitzvah, the night of Passover. What they disagree about is every other day of the year. Every day of the year, including Passover night, by the way, every day. Is there, there is certainly a mitzvah, everybody agrees, that every single day of the year, we have to remember the fact that God took us out of Egypt. No one disagrees with that. The fight, big fight in the Mishnah is, is that once a day or twice a day? Elazar ben Azariah said it's twice a day. It's in the daytime and also at nighttime. The Chachamim said, like many mitzvot, it's one time a day. You do it once a day. So why is that in the Haggadah altogether, actually? Why is that God even mentioned that? Then to do a Passover. But it raises the interesting question as to what is the relationship between these two mitzvot. The mitzvah to remember the Exodus, which is every day, and according to Raza ben Azariah, twice a day. And the mitzvah on the night of Passover was Saper B'tziat Mitzrayim. So one general approach that many have taken, many, is to point, is to argue that what the Haggadah is about is trying to show this, how special Passover night is, 
right, discriminating it from every other night. There's a mitzvah to remember the Exodus every night. In which case, what's so special about Pesach? We remember it every night. And the answer's got to be, well, there's something different about telling the story about Sipur from memory. And that launches us into an interesting thinking about what are the specifics about Sipur. That's, that's one general approach. It's there to get us to think about the difference and the specialness of the night of Passover. And there's certainly, certainly that's an important point. Certainly that's true. That the night of Passover is not just to remember. Among other things, memory does not require anybody else. But with Saper, tell your story, typically you want someone else to hear the story. Tell a story to somebody else. And there are many other differences as well. And you stay up all night, marble and Saper, etc. There's other pieces to it. That's one approach. Well, mention, I mean, turning Zahira in itself, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it's become normative that it's Dibur. Right, that's true. Which, is, which implies other. Well, yes and no. It is true that we fulfill this mitzvah through our prayers, actually. We fulfill the mitzvah by reciting the Shema. That's the last pasuk of the Shema. And there's a fight, actually, in the Talmud, if you say that third parsha at night. Because according to one view, why would you say it at night? There's no tzitzis at night, and there's no, and there's no memory of Egypt at night. And the other opinion says, no, there is. There's certainly a certain memory of Egypt at night. Maybe it be tzitzis at night, too. But the point is, so, so we, we do it through speech, that's true. But speech and sepo are not the same thing. We're talking to God, you might say. But you can remember something without, if you're by yourself in a room, you can remember it, and even to mention it, okay? With askir, which is possible another meaning of Zahira, you don't need the other. But it's usually a story, you need the other person for a story. So, and the Haggadah is set up that way. The entire Haggadah is set up by people talking to each other, either different five scholars to each other, or parents and children. There are people speaking to each other throughout the Haggadah. etc., etc. And it's also question and answer, typically, as well. That's how the Haggadah is set up. Yes? I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Blessing of Geula, is that understood in this context as simply being rabbinic, and they're wondering about the Delisa issue of mentioning the Exodus? Because they know, I mean, even if you hold that at night, you don't have to be. You don't have to mention the Exodus. Look, I mean, at first glance, they they still recognize an obligation for the blessing after the Shema, which requires a mention. Right. So I don't remember the Gemara there, which talks about. It's a good question of whether the blessing after the Shema at night is. Uh, I mean, we we happen to hold that we do remember it twice a day. We hold that we mention the Exodus day and night. If you didn't hold that way. What would the blessing be after the Shema at nighttime? That's a good question. Would it include all this discussion, which is most of the blessing, about the Exodus, the same in the morning? I don't remember. It comes up in the Gemara, second parrot. In any event, that's one approach. Yeah. Can you do a seer on your own? Yes. No one else is there. You speak to so, yourself. Because it seems like it's young, it's fine. there's no learning, because there's a collective activity of actually leaving Right. When you don't do it together with the people, you have to lose up here at a table and have a a group activity, and you have to do the mitzvah and almost like vocalized. But you can't do that if you're alone. It's right. How much this is about being with others? Optimally, it's with others. 
the text say, if there's no one else there, then you talk to yourself, basically. But, but that's not, not optimal. I would say that you have to remember that the entire Seder is directed to people that were actually never there. So the point of recreating that event in our own minds, which is one of the objectives of the Seder, has to do with the fact that the people that the Haggadah speaks to, both they, themselves and their next generation, children or whomever, nobody was there. So the point is that the Haggadah is directed to people that were not there who have to figure out a way to connect to that event, to see themselves in the words of the Haggadah in every generation as if we, as, as if we were there. Not only as if we were there, but then transmitting to the next generation who also weren't there. And that's the, one of the challenges of the Seder, obviously. It's a very different experience. I, maybe I'll get back to that later. I think Devorah may have spoken about that last week, a bit about it last week. But in any event, I want to make a different point about Sipur and Zechira, which is that Sipur, telling the story and remembering, that actually the Haggadah itself connects these two things. The Haggadah tells the story of these five uh, Zikanim who were busy learning all night. They were reclining, it says, They're totally engrossed in it. Until what? Until their pupils came and said to them, Rabotenu. He said, time's up. But how did they say time's up? It's time to say the Shema. Now, of course, everybody agrees that there's a mitzvah to remember the Exodus in the, in the daytime. Point to everybody. No one disagrees with that. And we, that we fulfill the mitzvah through the recitation of the Shema. So effectively what they were saying to them is, it's time to, the mitzvah you are engaged in is over. Now it's time for a new mitzvah, which is to remember. And you can remember it with one verse. I haven't got it, took you out of Egypt, you remembered it. Okay, fine. So the point is, that raises a different question, which is, what is the relationship between Sipur and Zechira? And what I suggest, in my Haggadah as well, I suggest that the mitzvah is, the great moment, is the moment we leave Egypt. The moment we leave Egypt, we become a people. That's the moment, you never want to forget that moment. So when it actually happens, you try to relive it. You try to relive it. That's good, that's one day of the year. What do you do the other 364 days of the year, or whatever? So you don't want to lose it the rest of the year, so you ritualize it. And during the rest of the year, you don't do seaport, that's all night, or whatever, but you don't want to lose it either, so you ritualize it, and the idea of the ritual, among other things, is that you don't forget it. You make it part of your life, so you're always remembering it. And then when it comes to the next Pesach, you've remembered it all year, even twice a day. You said it, like, God took us out of Egypt, and now the night of Pesach, it's a different experience of, of reliving it. So the Haggadah itself, actually, brings the Mishnah and Brachot about memory, because it wants to make the point that the memory and the telling are actually connected to each other. And that maybe the, one of the functions of memory is that you don't lose, you don't lose it totally. It's in your mind in some place. But the exodus from Egypt has a very central idea. And then when you come to next Pesach, then you expand upon it, build it, Sipur, and it's, it's a very different experience. So that's the mitzvah that the Haggadah calls of Sipur Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim. So we have the mitzvah of Sipur, and the mitzvah of Sipur is about study. It's not actually just about telling a story. And this is very important, that how do we do the mitzvah of Sipur Yitzhiyat Mitzrayim? The, the instructions are given in the Mishnah. And the Mishnah says... And this is very striking about, it's so striking, actually, 
or we take things for granted, but actually, think about it, it's crazy, but this is what we do, which is that the Mishnah gives us very explicit instructions about how to go about to tell the story or to study the story, and it says when you on the night of Pesach, there's one core text that you choose, which is taken from the book of Devarim, chapter 26, the Pilgrim's Prayer, Arami Ovedovi. It's what you recite when you bring the first fruits to the temple, which are not brought on Pesach, probably brought on Shavuot, the festival of the first fruits. And when the person brings the first fruits to the temple, there's a recitation. And that recitation becomes the core text of the Seder. And the Mishnah adds, V'doresh Kola Parsha Kula. You should engage in Midrash, or study of the Parsha. So in other words, on the night of Pesach, we are given a text. The night of the Exodus, okay? We're given a text by the Mishnah, which is not from the book of Exodus. And we are told to study these verses. We, 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 have, we have actually disobeyed the Mishnah. The Mishnah says read the whole Parsha, which has more verses. We don't. We read four verses, the last of which is God took us out of Egypt, and we are engaged in Midrash. And in order that the whoever puts the Haggadah together, and no one has a clue who that person is, but whoever put the Haggadah together helped us out. Didn't want to rely upon us creating our own Midrash. Having seen some Midrash that people create, I could see why the Baal Haggadah was wary of that. In any event, so that Baal Haggadah helps us out. The Baal Gadah doesn't think you do your own Midrash, by the way. The Baal Gadah says, do a Midrash. Mishnah says it. But, I'm going to help you out. And the Haggadah on these four verses has 21 Drashot. 21. Now, what is remarkable about the 21 Drashot, again, this is all taken for granted, but no one thinks. But if you think about it, it's crazy. Of the 21 Drashot, 18 of the 21 have another verse that supports what the verses in Deuteronomy say supports or explicates, but three of them don't. Of the 18 verses that are cited uh, to attest to what it says in Devarim, chapter 26, 13 of the 18 are taken from chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Exodus. In fact, the second and third verses of the four have a total, I think, of seven or eight citations, all from the book of Exodus. Every one of them from chapter 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Exodus. Now, Moshe Kapoya is, I mean, this is like the craziest thing. You're not reading from the book of Exodus. Blah, 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 blah. Read from the book of Exodus. We're going to explain it by reading the first three chapters of Exodus. And of course, you could ask the question, why don't you just, you know, short-circuit it and let's just read the book of Exodus. No, no, you don't do that. you got to read the Parsha, which seems completely inappropriate, of bringing the first fruits to the temple. And now you're going to explain it by virtue of chapter 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Exodus. That's what the Mishnah tells us to do. That's what the Haggadah has us do, and even helps us out, because the Haggadah gives us the drashot, gives us the 21 drashot. The drashot, of course, raise a whole host of other interesting questions. What do you want to say back there? I, I wanted to actually ask you um, about recitation and drashot. I mean, since it's laid out drashot, and it's almost become, I mean, it's standard amongst most people that this is... Yes, I will get to that question. That's a very important question. I have a point of view on that. That's a very important. I mean, let me say, before I get to, I will, I will respond to that. That's a very important point. I have a thought about that. Those things tend to happen in general, by the way. When you have a text, it becomes fossilized, because when you, you read the same text, and it loses, but for any number of reasons, it loses its original power, 
energy, meaning, etc. And, and that's always a danger. The nice thing about the Seder is, in Israel there's one Seder a year, here there's two, okay, but it doesn't happen that often. The trick is the Jerashot, most people just recite what it says in Agana, they just read it, and they're not seeing it as a drasha. And that's, that wasn't the intention. But I will come back to your point about a recitation, because I do believe there's a recitation. Now, this is, let's see, what, this is what we have so far, okay? So, the first question is, before you get to the specific Rashad, which are very interesting, the first question is, you have to go back to the basic question, is why in the world would our Mishnah tell us, to choose for us, actually, and we obey the Mishnah, largely obey, choose a text from the book of Dvarim, and a book that seems completely irrelevant to Pesach, that seems, it is irrelevant to Pesach, it's about Shavuos, basically. So it's a very odd choice. What is driving the, the mission? So first of all, I'll mention what Rabbi Soloveitchik said many times, and that is that he said that, I'm, it's my words, but it's his thought. He said that, of course, the mission could have you read the first 12 chapters of Exodus. So let's sit down and read it. He says, but reading it is a relatively passive thing. You're sort of reading what's there. But the mission doesn't want you to do that. It doesn't want you to be passive. It wants you to search for the meaning. So instead it gives you four verses. And it says, oh, here are these four verses. From these four verses, see how much you can extract. Raise all kinds of questions about the verses, syntax, language, contradictions, other texts, etc. And out of that engagement and study, optimally with other people, not just by yourself, with questions and answers, see if you can come to a deeper understanding of what happened in Egypt. So it's Midrash, it's not just about, it's basically an exercise in what he called Talmud Torah. That optimally, I'm not saying it always is that way, but optimally, so the short text, they like the text when it's very short. And it forces you to study it, because you get four verses, you've got to get the whole story. Now, I, I have no doubt that there's a lot of truth to that. I think it's a good answer, personally. But, it is certainly not a sufficient answer. It certainly is much, much, much more than just saying it shows a short text, and now go and study. That thing is an important point. So in my Haggadah, I suggested, I think, the three or four reasons why they chose it. Now, normally speaking, when somebody gives you three reasons, you're very suspicious. There's no one reason. Right. You're suspicious of all of them, actually. How come he says she's your sister? Well, she, I was afraid for my life, so why'd you come here? Well, she really is my sister. I took her as a wife. Huh? And we do this every place we go. So the point is, there are a lot of terutsim, but then you wonder about ishterets, basically. They all seem weak. I would say in this case, it's not so. I have four answers and they're all good. Uh-huh. Each one of them is good. Each one, and of course they're approaching it from a different perspective. It's hard to know whether our tradition takes all into account. But actually, I think it's, they're all very interesting answers. And what I suggested is that the parsha of Aramio Veda V, chapter 26, the bringing of the first fruits to the temple, one thing to look at is, what is that parsha about? In other words, forget, forget where it's located. What appealed to the rabbinic tradition about that particular parsha? Secondly, its location is interesting. It's located in the book of Devarim. It's not in Exodus. It's also interesting where it's located in the book of Devarim. That's another and then the final thing is the very statement, I mean, it's related to the first point, the very statement of Aramio Vedovi, 
does it have a special cast to it? Is there something special about the way the statement is made? So let me come to the first point first, which to me was obvious, and I must confess, and I've never seen anybody else who suggests this, and I, I can't fathom why. I mean, I have a suspicion why Rabbi Salvation wouldn't suggest it, but I don't understand why many haven't suggested it. And my suggestion is the following, that we started by saying that the night of Pesach in the Chumash, it's clear that fundamentally what it is, it's the night on which you and the members of your household partake of the sacrifice. Sacrifice was brought in the daytime, which is the 14th, which the Chumash calls the day of Pesach. And the night, actually, is when you eat of the Pesach with other members of the family, with the Bayit. So, that's what it says in the Chumash. Then the rabbinic interpretation is that in conjunction with the Pesach, there's another mitzvah. And that's the mitzvah to study the story, or to tell the story, the sapir, telling, studying, whatever you understand. So I suggested, firstly, that what the rabbis were looking for is some kind of paradigm. Where do we have a case where you bring a sacrifice and tell a story? We do have a case of bringing sacrifices and making statements. That we do have. For example, the sin offering. When somebody brings a sin offering, it is accompanied, says the Torah, what the Torah calls vidui, with confession. Maimonides famously, famously said, when you bring a shuamim, a peace offering, a goodwill offering, the Rambam added of his own. He had, as far as I know, has no source for this. This is head, logic. The omim alav shevach. When you bring the goodwill offering, you bring, you say a praise of God. With a sin offering, you say a confession. That's just a statement. I sinned, I'm sorry, whatever it is. But we have one place in the Bible, and only one, where when you bring a sacrifice, you have a story. Now, it depends what you mean by sacrifice. Sacrifice I'm referring to is what the mitzvah we call Bikurim. Now, is Bikurim a sacrifice or not? Bikurim are first fruits, and they're given to the priest. So Maimonides, the Rambam, very famously distinguishes two kinds of things the priest gets. One thing the priest gets is what he calls the gifts given outside the temple. For example, Someone has a field. You take a certain part of your field, truma, and you give it to the Kohen. The Levi gives a part of his Maser, a tenth part of the Maser, to the Kohen, Maser and Amaser. Uh, Chala. Chala is given to the Kohen. Chala is like truma. There are other things as well, other gifts. Reshi Sagez is given, etc. These things are not sacrificial, but they're gifts you give to the Kohen. There are a bunch of those. And then the Ramam says, but the priest also gets parts of the sacrifice. If it's a burnt offering, you don't eat it, but he gets the skin. If it's a sin offering, a chatos, an asham, part goes to the priest. If it's a shuamim, part goes to the priest. So that mincha, the priest. So they, that's the priest, gets those offerings. The question is, what about bikurim? So bikurim is an excellent question. The first fruits. Because bikurim on one hand sounds like truma, which is not, they do with the temple, you give the Kohen, the, the Bikurim, Kohen stands in for God. But when you look at the Chumash, it doesn't sound that way. Because when the Chumash talks about Bikurim in Deuteronomy, chapter 26, it talks about bringing it, putting it in a basket, bringing it to the temple, handing it to the priest, and placing it next to the altar. Eitzel HaMizbeach. 
So the Rambam says that Bikurim, it seems this way from the Torah, should be classified not as simply a gift to the priest, but as a sacrificial gift to the priest. And there's no doubt that's the Pshat of the Chumash. And this particular sacrificial gift to the priest is accompanied by a story called Aramio Vedovi. So the rabbis chose Aramio Vedovi because it precisely uh, supports their interpretation of what the Seder is. Namely, it's not just a sacrifice, which it is, a sacrificial meal, but it's a sacrificial meal which is accompanied by a statement. And the statement is exactly the statement that accompanies the sacrifice in the book of Dvarim. That was my first suggestion. i got to tell you the truth. It's so obviously right that you've got to wonder, how come no one sees this? I mean, it's just, I think the reason that some people wouldn't see it, some people, is because where I'm coming from is, the Chumash says X, and the rabbis are reading something else into the Chumash. They're choosing to interpret that the night of Pesach is a mitzvah of, of study, a mitzvah. But when you read the Chumash, you could easily not, uh, not see that. So they made a choice to set it up a certain way. Once they make a choice to set it up a certain way, they look for a paradigm. But if you don't assume they're making a choice, that's what the Chumash says. But you never have to jump to why would they choose a paradigm? They need a paradigm. The Chumash says it. That's probably the reason that I salvation wouldn't suggest it. As far as the other people are concerned, I, it doesn't matter. I care about the others anyway. The point is, that's one possibility. Um, could it be that the reason that the Bikurim uh, verses, or the Bikurim offering, that that's the only time that there's a sequel that accompanies it? Could it be that there's a sequel because it's so odd? In other words, You've mentioned all the others. You've got the chum, you've got the masa, you've got the challah, when it's not sacrificial. Then when it's sacrificial, you've got the eating, you've got the skin offering, the shalom, the mincha. Could it be that specifically because it's so, it, it's a bikurim offering in a basket when we put it on the, on the, near the altar, that it's nothing like anything we've done before, that it needs a seaport to accompany it? In other words, so that the actual act of bikurim, tel, bikurim bringing, what's, what do you use, you use the word of, informs the story that has to accompany it. Whereas the others, it's move on. We already know why you bring those sacrifices. But maybe, just specifically because it's so unusual. In which case, it would fit with the paradigm of the, the Seder and the questions, because the whole point is to turn everything upside down, like Devorah used to say. An upside down, an upside down Magadha stimulates the question, Mommy, why is that Magadha upside down? And once you ask the question, once you explain the Bikurim, okay, you've already—it's a perfect paradigm for for the. Sin. I think the Bikurim is actually—I think it's something else with the Bikurim. But when else do we bring the Bikurim? When else do we bring fruit? Oh, that is that, that's, that's what that, I'm saying. that is special. But I think the Bikurim has an additional piece to it, which is that the Bikurim represents the fact that the land is my land. Mm-hmm. The the point is that what's significant about the Bikurim is someone lives in the land. It's a farmer. And the Bikurim means it's his first crop. And the Torah emphasizes, unlike, for example, let's say the laws of the sabbatical year. The whole point of the sabbatical year is that it's not actually your land. God said it's my land. You happen to live there, but you're strangers and sojourners with me. It's my land. Since it's my land, I could demand every 50 years it gets returned. It's not yours in the first place. I could demand you not work on the seventh year, because it's my Shabbos. I can make all kinds of demands. 
It's not yours. It's mine. I'm a nice God. I, I give you a lot of permiss- permissibilities, but I but I have my my limits, etc. With Bikurim, is exactly the opposite. Bikurim, the emphasis is the land that you worked. In the Torah, uses the word Adama for Bikurim. The Shemitah uses Eretz. Adama means the land you work. And the point of the Bikurim is, and this is, I think, a very it's a safer Dvarim idea. The land is your land. You work very hard. But you have to remember, how did you get this land in the first place? In other words, b- before you were around, there were other people around, and this God was helping in this history, etc. So it's important to understand that this is my land. I've been here for a hundred years, maybe. But, it, but, that, but there's, a, there's a history to what it is. And the history has two main players. One is God, who redeemed us, who, who enabled me to be here. But apart from God, there's also somebody else. There's my past, which begins with my with my my parents or my great great and ancestors. Aramio Vedovi, my my father, my ancestor was a wandering Aramean, came down to Egypt, built a nation there, suffered, God help, etc. And now I bring the fruits of the land that you have given me, O Lord. The guy's been living there for a hundred or two hundred years. But the point of the Bikurim, and that's Sefer Dvarim. That's a Sefer Dvarim idea. That the land is your land, but. Because the Chumash earlier doesn't say it's your land, but. It's a God's land. It's exactly the opposite. You are strangers and sojourners with me. It's my land. So, so you do what I want. If you don't do what I want, I'll kick you out. And Sefer Devarim is a different take on it. No, it's your land. The God of Deuteronomy is not in it's, the God of, of Ayikra is walking with the people. I shall walk amongst you. The God of Sefer Devarim is very distant. Look down from your abode in heaven. Someone you visit a few times a year. But you don't doesn't live with you. You're visiting. A few times a year you go visit. That's a different story. That's actually, and the truth of the matter is, if you think about it, it's a very profound idea in terms of our practice. We have a practice, whoever observes it or not, I think it's a very important practice, called the Birchas Hanenim, that before we eat things, we make blessings. And even the smallest thing, blessings after you eat, depends how much you ate, etc. But the Gemara says that before you eat anything that's described as food, you make some kind of blessing, and there's a whole discussion what kind of blessing on what, etc. And there's a hierarchy of blessings. There's a hierarchy of blessings. There are two blessings that sit at the top of the pyramid there. And the blessings have different levels of blessing. Two blessings that sit on the top Number one is Hamotzi Lechem in Aretz. It's the blessing you make on bread. And the other blessing that sits on the top is Bore Priyagefen, blessing on wine. It sits on the top because we have a principle that, well, it's not exactly what the principle is. We have one principle that Iker and Tafel, if something's important and secondary in blessings, make a blessing on the, on the basic. When it comes to bread, it goes even beyond that, which is if you make a blessing on bread, and you eat 50 things, you don't make any blessings. The blessing on the bread, with some exceptions, covers everything else you eat. Foods. And the blessing on wine, by the way, covers the drinks. Make a blessing on wine, you have other drinks, you make a blessing. Only on the wine. Now that's the, that's, that's how the blessings are set up. What is strange about it, to put it mildly, is the following. If you eat a clementine or something, you make a very pure eights, you know? Eat a green pepper, you make a very pure adama. I understand that blessing very well. Well, Shahakol, God created. I got those blessings. 
because the pepper is a pepper. It grew on the, from the ground, and, and the apple grows on the tree, right? Thank you, Allah, for giving me the apple. Like, I, I got. But I'm mozi lechem in the aretz. What do you mean? I have a loaf of bread. If you make bread from scratch, by the way, no one makes it from scratch, but you make it from scratch. What does the Gemara say? Kaba yigiyot yoga marisha. Imagine how much work it goes into that bread. You sit down, you eat a loaf of bread. How much work? You got to the field, you got to harvest the crop, plow the field, works. Then you got to take the dough, then you got to put the water in, then you got to, I mean, you're baking it, the works. What do you mean, Amotzi Lechem? Who brings bread out of the earth? No bread comes out of the earth. We made the bread. Same thing with the wine. We make the wine, right? People have great pride in the wine they make, you know what I mean? So that's the whole point. To ascribe to God the, the cucumber or the green pepper, that's, that's secondary. The most important thing to ascribe to God is Amotzi Lechem in the Aretz. And that's exactly what you have in Sefer Dvarim. That's the mitzvah of Bikurim. Bikurim means, this is the fruit that you have given me, O Lord. How will you give it to me? 200 years I've been in this land. Family, 200 years. No, no, you gave it to me. Because without you, I have nothing. And not just because of the rain and the weather and the climate and all that stuff, but because there's a history to this place. And I have to be grateful not just to my, to the God who takes care of me, but I have to recognize that where I am today is because other people came before me and they helped me get where I am. That's where I think Bikurim is important. So that's one aspect of Bikurim, which is Arami Ovedavi is the statement that you make in conjunction with the sacrifice, or that which has a sacrificial cast. Now I'll get to Shmuel's point, something else about Arami Ovedavi. I came across this when I was working on the Haggadah, it's already a few years, you know, and it was translated into Hebrew. And the truth of the matter is, when I look at it, I, I could be much better, actually. Because you always have new things to say, you know? I would formulate it differently today. In any event, but it's not bad, but it could, could be bad, of course. So I was thinking the following, that um, there's something else about Arami Oveda V, which is very striking, which is, it is a recitation. It's a recitation. Arami there's a text. You ought to say the following. It's like the priestly blessing. We don't want the priest to start innovating. There are, 50, there are three verses, there are 15 words, you know what I mean? And uh, 3, 5, and 7, and, and that's the, just the way it's set up. And the priest recites this, for many reasons. And Vyanito Vyamartu, if there you shouldn't say, make the following declaration. So it's a ritual. Now the question is, what about the way the Haggadah is set up for us? Is it a ritual, or is it just a study? Or is it just a collection of verses from here, there, and everywhere? So what got me thinking was that many years ago, there's a Haggadah put out by a guy, Josh Cole. I don't know him personally. He seems like a very lovely human being. And he put out a Haggadah from the conservative yeshiva. It's an academic side to it. In that Haggadah, I forget his argument, he makes the claim that it's sort of thrown together. And the claim that he makes, I, I didn't understand that claim at the time. I don't think it's true. I don't think the Haggadah who gave us the drasha, actually, is simply culling from here, there, and everywhere. I believe that he wants the Haggadah to be simultaneously, in my view, a vehicle of study, and probably intends us to delve deeply into these drashot, not just to read them, but to have them encourage us to look more deeply at what he has to say, and maybe our own questions, our own drashot. I think that's the spirit of the Seder. Having said that, it strikes me that he set up the drashot in such a way that if it's not a recitation per se, 
it feels somewhat like a recitation. And I'll say the following. It strikes me they're put together in a way that is, he's, he's trying to organize them in a certain way. Who's he? No one knows. One of the great mysteries of all time. It's the most important, let's put it, put it this way. Perhaps with the exception of the Chumash. The main book of the Jewish people is the Haggadah. No one has a clue who wrote it. No one has a clue. Now, some people might, might say no, one's, no one has a clue about the Chumash either, but that's another story. <laughs> that's a different story. In any event, some might say that, right? It doesn't matter. I mean, the point is, we don't know. It's a mystery beyond belief. We have absolutely no idea who wrote this, put this Haggadah together. It's incredible, really. It's amazing. So anyway, the, what's interesting is, let's get back to these. First of all, let's get back to two things. The first is the fact that the way the Haggadah is set up in the Medrash, 21 Midrashim. 20, he breaks the four verses into pieces. Here's 21 so-called Midrashim, or Drashot. Drashot. 18 of the 21 have a verse, a scriptural verse, to, to let's call a test at this point, what the meaning is. Only three do not, and the three that don't, actually, it's a question. How come three don't? Eighteen has three don't. Of the three that don't, they're all in the first verse. And the two of the three are the first Roshot. Arami Ovei Now I have a, maybe next week we'll discuss why those three don't have a scriptural verse. But really one could ask the opposite question. Why do any have a scriptural verse? Because the point is, what's the point of saying? There's a verse in Tavarim. The Egyptian time does. As it is written... And a citation from the beginning of the book of Shemot, beginning of Exodus. Why would you cite another verse to attest to the first verse? That was the, that was, we don't know who wrote the Haggadah, but here's what we can be quite sure of. Whoever wrote it did not believe in the documentary hypothesis. I can guarantee that. Did not believe that there's D and E and J and R or whatever. Doesn't believe that. In other words, the book of Deuteronomy doesn't need to be proven by a citation from Exodus. Because for the Baal Haggadah, the book of Deuteronomy has exactly the same force and sanctity as the book of Exodus. What do you mean, as it is written? So that makes no sense. So we have to ask the question, why, what is the point of citing another verse altogether? Now, the claim, by the way, side point, when I grew up as a kid, and I heard this, I think, from one part of Professor Halibni, that this kind of medrash have a verse with another verse to confirm, explicate, or attest is the earliest form of medrash that we have. The truth of the matter is, as a kid, I believe that. And then I began to think to myself, I don't find other midrashim like this, actually. So I read, when I was doing the work on the Haggadah, somebody questioned it. He said, this is what people were saying. There's no evidence for it, and I'm quite sure that's true. I see no evidence whatsoever that that statement has any validity at all. I don't by the way, even if it has validity, it doesn't explain what it's about, but I don't think it's about that. I think the Haggadah chose this particular strange form, and probably it's related to the idea that the Haggadah, in its own medrash, wanted to retain a certain kind of, a certain text in the medrash. The text being a different set of Torah verses. I think the Haggadah wants the medrash to be reflective of, or parallel to, what it says in the Chumash. The Chumash has a recitation. I think the Haggadah wants you in the study to see it also as a recitation. And I would say two other things in conjunction with that. The main one being that 
It's interesting where these verses come from. They're 18 verses. 18 are from the Torah. No, 13. Stop. 18 verses from the Bible. Right. 13 from the Torah. The majority of which are from the book of Exodus. Maybe there are even 15 from the Torah and 13 from Exodus. I think it's 15 from the Torah, 13 from Exodus, 2 from other places in the Torah, and 2 from the prophets, and 1 from the so-called Ketubim. Now, verse 2 and 3 are only from the book of Exodus. So let's scrap that. Verse 1 has 7 or 8 Roshot, 3 of which have no verse at all. They're not, not attested. The last, it has from the Torah, and it has one verse from the prophets, which is the last verse. Of verse number 1, the verse from Yechezkel. When you get to the last verse, which is four, verse number 4, that's for us the last verse, there are six, there are six Roshot. Two from the Torah, then there's one from Ketubim, then there's two more from the Torah, and the last verse is from the prophet Yoel, from the from the prophets. This struck me very interesting. You have the Torah, and then you have the Ketubim, and the Torah, and the Nevi'im. And what it struck me, that the way the Haggadah has organized the verses, it bears a similarity to another, to the other place where we have a recitation of verses. There's one place in that tradition we have a recitation of verses. The whole day revolves around the recitation of verses, actually. And of course, talking about Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, the prayers of Rosh Hashanah are a recitation of verses. In the Mishnah Ray, there's a fight. How many verses? To Rabbi Akiva and uh, I forget the other, forget the other Tana, Baki on his name. But, uh, Sanya Shulban Levi, he's an Amor Baki on the name. There's, there's another, what? Ben-Terra. Don't think it's been Betera. It's it's it doesn't matter. There's another. Oh, come back to me. There's a fight. We follow Rabbi Akiva. So, how many verses do we say on Rosh Hashanah? So, we have Malchios, Sichrot, and Shofrot. So, Rabbi Akiva says there's a minimum of 10 verses for each. 10. A minimum of 10. And then he continues, where it says, Where are these verses from? So, we say three are from the Torah. Our practice is three from the Torah. Three from the writings, Psalms actually, three from the prophets, and then there's a tenth verse from the Torah. But of the nine, the order is Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im. Not Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, not Tanakh. Torah, Ketuvim, Nevi'im, and Rosh Hashanah. It's true for Malchios, true Zithros, true for Shofros. The other opinion, by the way, is there are only three. Baki on the name at this. One from the Torah, one from Ketuvim, one from Nevi'im. We follow Rabbi Akiva's view, and we say 10, 10, and 10. Malchion, after each set of 10, we blow the shofar. However, the other view is not discarded. We actually, there's a, a remnant of the other view that there's, that there's three verses. Because the other view said something else. The other view claims that one of the sets of the verses is not in the middle blessings. There are nine blessings on Rosh Hashanah. Only three in the beginning, three at the end. And the middle has three blessings. Nine. The third blessing, which is a regular blessing, about God's Ha'el HaKadosh, but on Rosh Hashanah is Ha'el HaKadosh. So the view is that the Malchiot is recited in the third blessing. Not in the fourth blessing, but the third blessing. So, But we don't do it. However, there's a, a poem we recite in the third blessing of Rosh Hashanah. What is that poem? Very beautiful. 
Hope you recite the third blessing of Rosh Hashanah. It starts like this. God should fear should extend over the whole world. That's the first paragraph. Give honor to your people. Right? And then, Sound familiar? Like I know, I can sing the Nusuk too, but I take up time now. And it says, as it is written, As they continue, now, what is very striking, actually, is that there are two verses cited in that section. The first verse that's cited is the fourth paragraph. And the next paragraph, which ends the blessing, Kadosh is going to be the ending, right? You are awesome and holy. There's no other God like you. As it is written, God is raised up in, in, in justice. God is sanctified through righteousness. Blessed are you, O God, the Holy King. Where is that? Where are the verses from, actually? Psalms. And the last verse is from the prophet. Now, what's interesting, I gave a Shia many years ago, and I wondered about what starts Uvachain, therefore. Therefore, there must be something said before. Uvachain take covered Hashem al Komasecha. God reign over the whole world. Right? Uvachain, now that I've said X, reign over, but there's no X. What, what, what does it say before that? Before that, you say Kedusha, but what, where, what? What is it? So I suggested that at some point there was another verse there. And I wondered why the other verse was not there. I suggested the verse would probably be Hashem God shall reign forever. And God, you God, you shall reign forever. So do it. So I said, I wonder why, if it's true, now if it's true that the verse was there. You know exactly Torah, Ketuvim, and Nevi'im. And it's in the third blessing. That would be the Malchi also of the Akiva's Bar Pelokta, that's name I'm blocking on now. In any event. So somebody in the audience, actually a very brilliant guy, made a suggestion. So I'll tell you why it's not there. And when he said, I said, you know something, you could be right about this. Why it got expunged. I'll tell you why. He said the following. We follow Rabbi Akiva. We say Malchiot in the fourth blessing. But we have a problem with Malchiot. What's, what's the problem we have? The problem with Malchiot is that the, it revolves around the verses. So, you need three verses from the Torah, and the tenth verse is also from the Torah. 
And there are all kinds of rules and regulations about what verses are good. What you need primarily is the word melech. The problem is that in the Torah, there are only three appropriate verses with the word melech. Only three. To the extent that we need a fourth verse from the Torah. But there is no fourth verse from the Torah that works with melech. So what's the verse we use for the fourth verse of Malfiot? Shema Yisrael. We're forced to use the Shema, which of course is the myth of Kabbalat Omachut Shemayim. It's the acceptance of God's kingship, despite the fact that there's no Melech in it, because we have no Melech word. What can we do? So therefore he said, the reason he got expunged in the, in the first part is, they didn't want to make our Malchiot anti, anticlimactic by already citing the verse. There's no choice. You have no other verse. So therefore, so the other ones, you have other verses. The verses we use, that, those are extra verses. They're repeated later. But with the first verse, they would have to repeat it. So they took out the verse, and they understand, therefore, therefore giving you a promises, therefore Hashem, whatever. Now why do I mention all this? Well, there are two reasons. One is every literate Jew should know this. Let's start with this. And virtually nobody does, which is very sad. You know what I mean? The basic structures of Rosh Hashanah, I mean. My point is that the fourth verse of the Seder has this order, or something very similar. To Torah, Ketuvim, Torah, Nevi'im. Which strikes me, actually, that the Haggadah had in mind not just study, but actually had in mind a kind of recitation. And the reason it had in mind a recitation was because the text that it chooses in the first place is a recitation. And by the way, I may have mentioned this in the past, in my Seder, my parents' Seder, not mine, my father would actually chant the Haggadah. There's a chant of the Haggadah. This is lost in most places, but in Europe, many people chanted the Haggadah. In fact, in Jerusha, I remember once, you know, we had a woman named Barbara Trout, and remember Barbara Trout, a fine person, survivor. She had a number on her hand. I grew up with all the numbers on her hands, but everybody had a number, but she had a number. Auschwitz, she was like 14 years old. Tough lady. And one time I was giving a share of the Haggadah, saying my father used to uh, chant it. I began to chant it. I'll chant it for you in a minute. She started to cry. There was a barber crying. So what's the problem? My father said it that way. But it was very common, and now no one chants it. It's very, not so different from a Rosh Hashanah chant. Say, Ulamah. And guess remember the chant. Didn't remember anything I said. Or anybody else said. But the chant they never forget. It's a very haunting chant. And it's part of it. Why would you sing it, actually? You chant it. It's not just for memory, because the other thing, it's picking up something else. About our, our rituals are chanted, actually. No one just says the davening. There's a nusach. Tefillah has a nusach to it. We have taken this Haggadah, which is a bunch of drushes, okay? And we have converted it into a, into a, into a nusach, into a liturgy, because at its core, it actually is a liturgy. At its core, it's a recitation. True, the rabbinic tradition says, V'dorish kol parsha. So it's a learning. But, but the wisdom of the Jewish people, whoever did it, 
is you don't want to lose the other side of it either. So we have both. We don't want to lose, that's the response to your point. It is a recitation at its core. Yes, it's study. But then this, we have this text. So that we, gives us a text, actually. Now, God gives, very generous, gives us a text. And basically, the tradition has been to, uh, to chant it a certain way. The fact of the matter is that this Nusuk is lost, and the bigger problem is a lot of Nusuk is lost. Um, you have all these so-called Kabach Minyanim spring up all over the place where they sing the davening. The problem is that they forgot there's a Nusuk. I'll tell you one person who didn't forget there's a Nusuk, Shlomo Kabach. His songs actually come out of the Nusuk. They're very good, too. They come out of the Nusuk. He's building on the Nusuk. He didn't, he didn't from the Nusuk. There's nobody like that, by the way. Only Kalbach's that way. That his Nigunin, which is why he also sang in the davening itself. The Hasidim don't sing in the davening, by the way. Little secret. They never sing. Maybe they sing Kel Adon or something. That's it. They don't sing. They sing in the Tish. They sing in whatever. They don't sing in the... Kalbach actually put the Nigunim into the davening. And the reason it's good is because if it's done right, it's because you go, you slip right back into the nusach, which he does very often. Plays with the nusach, this and that, but it's always coming out of the nusach. So the nusach is lost in general, but as far as the Haggadah is concerned, it's really lost. And and the fact is, there's a reason for everything. In other words, there's a reason that there was a chant to the. Okay, so let me just get to. I think I have to stop at this point. Two, two more minutes. Okay. So let me just say that we will, next week I want to look at some of these drashot and to understand what they are about. What are they trying to teach us? What possibilities do they open up for us? So that's the um, one reason for Rami Ovedovi. It's a recitation and it's accompanying the, sac- the sacrifice. Those are two very good reasons for Rami Ovedovi. Now there are other reasons as well. I'll mention one. And, I'll, and the, the, main one I, the main one I'm not getting to now I'm not sure we'll get to it at all this year, but I'll make a small point about Rami Ovedovi. The mitzvah of Sipu Yitziat Mitzrayim and the mitzvah of Shema, early we said they are connected. Because one of them is about the everyday performance, which keeps alive the great moments. Part of halacha is intend, intended to keep alive the great moments by ritualizing them. So we don't lose them. There's actually something else about the Shema and about Arami Yovei The Shema is in our tradition, we are talking about God. The God we speak of in the Shema, the beginning of the Shema, Shem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, God is singular, God is different, God is one, and there are all kinds of different kavanot one could have in reciting the Shema, but fundamentally, God is this being around us, above us, who knows where, I might say in us, whatever, and we're contemplating the nature of this, of this, of this being. That's but Arami Oveda V actually starts, is also about God. But the God of Arami Oveda V is not a God who is up there in the heavens. It's not a God that we, the Arami Oveda V actually, um, is the God who is very much listening to seeing us, right? <laughs> the God of Arami Ovedo V 
So the God who interacts with us. And who is us? Us are the weak people, the slaves, those who are lost, the lost souls. Arami Ovedavi means literally my father was an Aramean about to perish. A lost Aramean, a wandering Aramean. The parsha that's just before Arami Ovedavi in the Chumash is actually Amalek. So the actual parsha before. Amalek picks up on the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities. A yea for your geya, that's Amalek. The anti-Amalek in the Chumash is God, actually. The very next parsha. And the two parshas have all kinds of literary links with each other. So I would say that on the night of Pesach, the Shema is the great ritual for the Jewish people of every day. It's the main piece of liturgy we have. The Haggadah is the great piece of liturgy we have once a year. It's a special thing we have once a year. And each one revolves around God, but each one speaks of a different God. The God of the Shema is some some transcendent being that we try to understand, come to terms with, accept the kingship, etc. But the God of the Seder is a God who hears our cries and God who tries to assist us in moments of weakness. That's a, that's a different dimension of God. So the connection perhaps between the Shema on one hand and the Sipu Yitzhi Misraim on the other hand goes back to something very deep, two different aspects of, of the God whom we serve every day, but also on special occasions we come, we want to see God in a different light. Now, the, the main reason Arami Oberi was chosen, I didn't get to, I'm not sure we'll get to it this year. So next week, I would like to uh, go through the, some of the drushos of the Haggadah. And we'll stop at this point.